Welcome to the Optimal Performance Guide, where we have conversations with high-level humans to provide clear guidance to the mindset and habits required for optimal performance. I'm your host, Rory Cordial. Okay, guys, today we have my good friend Pat Dossett on the show. Pat is extremely humble and always shining the light on others, so I'm excited to have this rare opportunity to share a bit of his journey with you. Pat is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He spent nine and a half years with the Navy SEALs, has his MBA from Wharton Business School, and is now the co-founder, along with Blake McCoskey, of a life-changing company called Made For. In this episode, it will become very clear that Pat is driven to serve something bigger than himself, that he knows firsthand as a Navy SEAL how a small team can have a profound impact in the world, and that he created a company in Made For specifically to help others achieve their full potential. A few things covered in this episode are the importance of a clear vision, path to becoming a Navy SEAL, life transitions, the importance of family and being a good teammate, specific breathing technique to promote calm in the body, his new company made for, what a game day is like as a Navy SEAL, his relationship with fear and failure, and countless advice throughout on optimizing performance. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. All right, enough talking. Let's get to the show. Pat, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. We're beyond thrilled today to be able to talk with Pat here. He is one of the most genuine, kind, humble, honest, just incredible humans I've ever met. So I'm looking forward to diving in a little bit in different areas. And in our show's optimal performance guide around performance, we're definitely going to hone in there. But just excited to talk with you today and kind of share your brain and your spirit. So oh, thank I, you. I love it. Well, the, the feelings are mutual and I am honored to be here and to, to call you a friend. So looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Pat. So tell me, what's your ideal way to charge your battery? <laughs> wow. That's such a, such a great question. I think about it in a couple of different ways. So when I think of, about recharging, I think about it in terms of real time. Like if I am exerting myself and I'm stressed or I am trying to overcome an acute phase of a situation, how can I recharge in real time? That's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is over time and you know, just life, right? The friction that we experience in life and how we can get in some ways worn down by life and the friction we're facing. I mean, now is a great example of with COVID-19 and everything that's going on. How can you... Um, uh, almost kind of recharge from that in a in a in a bigger uh, duration, kind of a bigger form. And so, I think the first to the first point around how do I recharge in real time? I think some of it is proactive, right? So, how can you tend to the very basic things, very basic habits of your body and your mind uh, to help build resilience and to make sure that um, you're setting yourself up for success? So, little things like drinking water, just how I'm paying attention to the small things throughout my day, the small moments of time throughout my day and how they are either 
building me up or breaking me down. And I think just by having a little bit of awareness around how we can use those small moments and small efforts throughout the day to build resilience in real time is one way that I think about it. Um, I think for a specific tool, breath is probably one of the most powerful ones. And I'm not sure who else you've had on the show, but I'm sure a lot of people have recognized we have this really powerful internal tool being our breath. And with our breath, a quick inhale, a long exhale, we can calm ourselves. We can actually drive our physiology to map our brain and body to a given environment and the stress that we're feeling. It's a really powerful tool and something that I use in real time. You know, I know you have Jack's young son and, and I have Rebel and Sailor, my twin girls, and they're born a week apart. I know we are experiencing an especially high level of probably stress uh, just with everything going on. And I know that I use breath in real time to power down and transition from, all right, I'm in work mode. Now I'm transitioning to dad mode, to husband mode, to what are the different roles that I'm trying to fill and making sure that I can map my mind and body and breath seems to really help for that. I think when I look at the the second aspect of recharging and, and, and recovering and building resilience in just terms of life, I think for me, it really helps to, you know, something that we cultivate in the SEAL teams is this this mission-focused mindset, really tuning into what's the big picture, what am I trying to achieve, and making sure that my efforts, both small and large, are helping me to achieve that, that purpose. And wherever I can map my effort to helping me achieve the thing that I care most about, I have res- resilience and it helps me recharge. And so just taking time to think about, okay, the grind that I'm dealing with over the last several weeks to get this aspect of my business going or the grind that I'm feeling over the first three months of my girls' lives when we're not sleeping very much, those are all, I can map all of those, all of that friction and all of that experience to a bigger mission, right? I want to bring strong, confident women into the world. I want to build a business that has a bigger mission that is helping people bring their best to the world. And so I think just taking time and having a sense of what's the bigger mission at play and how is my effort. And um, when I do feel like I am back on my heels or when I feel especially worn down, just take a little bit of time to think about, all right, how is what I'm doing mapping towards the bigger person? That always gives me more energy and leaves me feeling kind of recharged. I love what you said there. I was going to go to a couple of different things, but since you said just the clarity of vision, because I have found with high level performers, they seem to be crystal clear on the direction they're headed and what they're doing. And so when you mentioned purpose, of course, you're going to mention that as a high performer as yourself. Um, have you always had that kind of clear vision or when did that develop for you? you no, know, I, it's not something that I've always had. No. But I think that, you know, it's interesting in some ways it, it maps a little bit to my journey. So when I was in seventh grade, I read this book called Rogue Warrior. It was written by a gentleman named Dick Marcinko. And I read that um, book as well. Yeah. So, you know, Dick Marcinko was a famous SEAL. He founded one of uh, one of the teams and prolific author. And I read this book and for me, that kind of planted the seed of, wow, there's this job, this profession that in my mind, at least up until that point, seemed to be the hardest possible thing that you could do. And it was wrapped in this sense of adventure and kind of a higher purpose and mission and calling. And something about that resonated with me. I was like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to pursue. And so that in some ways allowed me, I was very fortunate at a young age to have this this thing that was driving me and this singular purpose and, and focus. And so everything that I did really through you know high school and beyond was focused on 
becoming a SEAL and achieving and realizing that dream. And so I think that was maybe one of the first times that I had something that that I felt so, had such a visceral connection to and felt so driven towards that it made it very easy to assess, you know, whether I was um, in college or whether I was in high school, is this helping me or hurting me achieve what I'm trying to achieve? The thing that I say that I care most about is this, is this promoting progress towards that goal or is it in some ways hindering progress towards that goal? But you know, I was I was very fortunate enough, and and a lot of luck played a, a role in this. I went to the Naval Academy. I was was fortunate enough to get a slot out of the academy into SEAL training, and I was fortunate enough during SEAL training to stay healthy and come out of SEALs training and and go to a SEAL team. But I would say that you know while that book in seventh grade was the probably the first thing that exposed me to all right focus on one thing and and let everything be measured of whether it's helping me or hurting me uh, to achieve that thing. The SEAL teams really cemented it and solidified it as, as a part of my mindset and practice. And so in the team and in the SEAL teams, and it's, it's interesting, I've, I've talked a little bit about this before, but when we talk about another SEAL, you don't hear a SEAL talk about another SEAL and say, oh, he's really big or he's really strong or he's an amazing shot. If a SEAL is vouching for another SEAL, the way that they the way that they characterize that is they say, he is a good team guy. And so the team is something that gets reinforced time and time again. And you just, it starts to cultivate this mindset and this culture or this, this ethos that everyone is a part of where it's team, teammate, self, right? And so team is a proxy for mission and what's the bigger thing. And everything is measured by that, right? And so if you are serving your own interest ahead of your teammates or ahead of your team and the mission, you're doing something wrong. And so I was very fortunate that I essentially grew up in that. My formative years were spent, you know, my first uh, almost nine and a half years were spent in the SEAL teams and in that community as a working professional. And that's something that has been encoded into me and reinforced. And I think one of the big things that I take away from my from my time in the teams. So There's so much there. When I was prepping for this, the Naval Academy, let me just check the Naval Academy. Is that a good school? I think that <laughs> <laughs> I saw Harvard, number one, Stanford Naval Academy, number three, as far as the hardest 6.8% acceptance rate. So difficult to get into average SAT, 1410, GPA, 3.9. I just, I just started kind of laughing at it because Pat's so humble. So just the fact of it's not easy to get in there. So it's kind of a big deal in itself. And when you're talking about high school, I love that you read the book and you, it sounds like you're really pulled towards becoming a SEAL. And I've, I kind of use that as a guide for myself in my life. Like what is pulling me to learn something about the body versus me pushing or chasing something? When I heard you talking, it really sounded like there's this big pull to explore becoming a SEAL. And then you were very clearly driving towards that goal. But I think that's remarkable. I'm just thinking about myself in high school for you at a young age to be so clear on yeah. like, this is this is what I want to do. I feel strongly pulled. Did you have a mentor guide you at all in that? Or is this just innate in you? You know, I don't think it's innate. I was, my father, when I was growing up, my parents divorced at a very, very young age and my mom remarried. And then I grew up with my mother and my stepfather, who I consider my dad, I have two fathers, but he always said in life, you're going to face decisions. And 99.99% of the time, the hard way is the right way. Every decision is going to have an easy way and a hard way. And he said, if you just pick the hard way, 
that's going to be the right way 99% of the time. So just do that. And it makes life very easy. And he continued to beat that drum for me as a, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, and just continue to beat that drum. And I think in some ways I internalized that a little bit to a point that when I read that book, I was like, well, that's the hardest way that you can go. So I should, I should probably just do that. But I, I, I love how you call out this idea of of being called or being in pursuit of something, right? Mm. And it's 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 interesting when I talk to people that are still in the SEAL teams and people that are transitioning out. And I have the same conversations with with friends that are professional athletes. I always tell uh, guys that are leaving the teams or considering leaving the teams, make sure that you get pulled out, that you don't get pushed out. Don't leave because you're disgruntled about something or because you feel that the grass might be greener. Leave because you feel that same visceral connection to something, that you want something as much as you want in the teams. And let that be the thing that you go in pursuit of. Because I always, I've always found that when you're pursuing things that feel central to who you are, it's, uh, the outcomes are always much greater, right? And so I think where people have a hard time, and, and I know professional athletes don't have this choice a lot of times when they decide to to leave a, a profession or they get injured or, or they have to move on next. It's kind of, they find this themselves in this place where, wow, what is that next thing? Like, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is what I did. And I think it's especially challenging when what you did is so physical in nature and what you do next is not going to be physical in nature. And that is a, it is a, it's a hard thing. It's a hard transition to make, but if you can look for and take the time and take advantage of the opportunity that you have to discover what you are really into, what you're passionate about and be in pursuit of those things, everything else kind of works out. So that's how I think about it. That's great advice. I was just thinking about transitions in life because I definitely have worked with professional athletes where it's really difficult when you spent so many years and and just so much effort and time into your profession and becomes how you're known and and to transition on just that identity tied to what you do what you did can be really difficult but as far as that clarity during a transition time to understand like where am I being pulled I feel like for myself, sometimes you need space, almost like time, like to figure that out. But what's that been in your experience? Or how about when you transitioned out of the teams? Did you feel an immediate like, okay, I'm ready to to move on. I'm I'm pulled out of here. Or what was that transition? Yeah, like? no, it, it, I love the question. I, so I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I didn't, I don't think I transitioned as smoothly as, as one can and transitions are never easy, but I loved being a SEAL and I loved my teammates. I loved the consequence of our actions. I loved serving something that was bigger than myself. All of these aspects of being a SEAL really had a deep and profound impact on me and something that I felt very connected to. I also loved jumping, diving, shooting, blowing things up, traveling around. All of those were great, but I've never been an adrenaline junkie. That's not what the job was about for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Those were all ancillary benefits. But I, I recognized I was approaching this point where past 10 years, you, you typically stay in for 20 years. And I knew that at some point I wanted to have a wife and I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be present for the family. And I couldn't reconcile how I was going to be a SEAL and give everything that I had to that job. And then also create a family or get on a path to having a family and give everything to, to that role. And so that ultimately was one of the deciding factors for me transitioning out. But what allowed me to transition out with peace of mind is that I, I recognize that while I love 
jumping and diving, shooting and all these things. The thing that I really connected with in the SEAL teams was with a small team of people and a small amount of resources, we could have an outsized positive effect in the world. I loved that. And so you could take a team of five people, you could take a team of 25 people, and you could do an operation or you could do something in an environment that you know, you're reading about on the, on the nightly news or that saves a lot of lives or that has a profound impact far outweighing the size of the team. And that to me, I was like, man, I love that. And what is going to allow me to transition from peace of mind is realizing that I can still do that on the outside, right? I can put a new team together and I can, you know, I use business school as a way to transition to give me some time and space to figure out, all right, what form does this take? What do I do? But I recognized that business school for me was just trading out my tool sets a little bit, getting a little bit different perspective and experience. But ultimately what I was going to return to was I want to have a small team and I want to create outsized positive effects and serve things that are bigger than myself. And so that's what I kept coming back to as I was transitioning. And I feel, you know, in some ways I'm still transitioning, right? I'm approaching in July, I will have been out for as long as I was in, which is a really strange concept for me because in my mind, I'm still a seal. I still have that mindset. I still have friends and brothers that are in the teams um, that are sacrificing. And I still feel as connected to the community as I did the day that I left. But all of a sudden, I've been a civilian for longer than I was in the teams. And it's a, it's a strange line to cross for me. But again, what I come back to is this idea that I'm serving things bigger than myself. I've got a small team trying to create outsized positive effects. So... That's how I that's how I think about it, how I've kind of navigated the transition. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I can just imagine to some level, I don't think anyone can imagine unless they've walked in your shoes or as another seal, but just the intensity, the magnitude. I mean, literally to be at the point where you're putting your life on the line, not many people have that kind of intensity in front of them, you know? So I, I think it makes a lot of sense how you just said you're approaching time out versus time in, but that time in is has like amplified to a big degree. I mean, it, it's certainly a part of my operating system and it's it's wired me in a way that will never change. Just the way mm. that I view the world and uh, the way that I move through the world and the way that um, I, it's interesting, you know, people come to the military for a lot of different reasons or they go into a service profession, whether it's, you know, firefighters or police officers or whatever that, that first responder, whatever this profession of service is, they go into it for a lot of different reasons. But what I found is that if you stay in for any length of time, at some point, and I can't say when it is, but at some point, that sense of service becomes a part of your fabric. You can't wash that out. You can't change that. And so this idea that I need to be serving things bigger than myself stays with you. And so I found that to be a really almost disorienting part of transitioning out when all of a sudden I transitioned out and I had a little bit of a uh, kind of a crisis. Right about a month after I transitioned out, I lost a lot of friends and and to include my best friend, they were all killed. The, their helicopter was shot down in Afghanistan. And right away went back to went back to the East Coast and was with families and, and and grieving and attending funerals and everything that comes along with that. And in my mind, I was immediately put back in this place. Well, but let's let's recheck my assumptions and the reasons that I I left. Did um, 
and was I being selfish? And do I need to go back in? Do I need to avenge my friend's deaths? Do I, you know, all the, the questions that come during, you know, turbulent situations like that. But what I returned to again was that my assumptions are the reasons for transitioning out. I want to have a family. I want to be there. I want to continue to do big things and serve big causes. Um, the, all of the, all those things still held true. But when I plugged myself, when I went to business school and then I went into the, you know, corporate world for a little bit, it was disorienting because I was trying to figure out, well, what is that? What is that bigger thing that I'm serving? Is this, am I just existing to get a paycheck and to serve my own self-interest? And that's like, that to me was the worst feeling. I, I, I did not like that at all. And so I continued to, you know, be affected by my time in the service. And again, I, I got out of it far more than I gave. There's no question about that. And I continue to be inspired by, you know, everyone that I served alongside and, and everyone that continues to, to serve in, in any capacity. So, and it's, it's, you know, it's especially important now we are, I'm not sure when this, this episode will air, but we're approaching, we're getting ready to approach Memorial Day and, you know, for a lot of people, Memorial Day signals the start of summer, barbecues, family events, and all these sorts of things. I know for me and my brothers and uh, my brothers that are no longer with us and their families, um, Memorial Day has a very, very um, deep meaning for us and something, it's an opportunity to pause and reflect and remember that there are a lot of people who gave everything that they had. Um, not expecting anything in return and they gave it for people that they would never meet. And so that to me adds a, a certain consequence to my decisions and actions and how I move through the world now, because I know people have sacrificed a lot for this and I want to make sure that I'm seizing the day, taking advantage of it and um, doing the best that I can. So I apologize. I forgot what your question was, but I kind of went on. A no, <laughs> it's so good. And just so many emotions come up for myself, just listening to that. I mean, yeah, with Memorial Day, definitely thank you for your service and it's heartbreaking for all your brothers and friends lost. So just taking a moment to think about them. Um, a lot of gratitude for what you guys do. And it also made me think about at one point I smiled in the fact of not about that, but about as you were speaking, thinking about your girls, how lucky they are to have a father that you clearly gave up or transitioned with something you deeply, deeply care about and love. But the idea of a family, it was also something you didn't want to let go of. And the fact that so now you have Rebel and Sailor, these girls in the world, and you get to share part of your growth and transition and everything that the time with the SEALs embedded into you with them. Uh, just the few years I've known you, I definitely feel like I'm taking some of that in. So I feel like you really are a vessel sharing. I, I can feel that passion with mm. you as a SEAL you know, so it doesn't seem gone to me <laughs> either. It's just like, it's clearly a part of you. And what a blessing to have these beautiful girls. And it seems listening to you really had two paths, right? Mm. I've traveled a lot for work as well. And it seems like when you travel so much, it's difficult to have a healthy relationship or marriage. You don't you see very few, I saw very few traveling so many weeks out of the year where you look at another person in that life like well they have a great relationship i'd imagine as the 15 20 year seal it's not easy to have a really healthy family to the degree that you would be thinking this is the kind of family i want 
but to do both, I don't know, maybe it's not possible at that level, you know? Yeah, man, it's, there are certainly a lot of people in uniform that, that have families and that do, they do a really good job of it. And my hats go off to them. I just don't know that I'm strong enough to do that. And the thing that I've noticed for the people that have been able to make it work is that they, they just have such a strong team at home and their partner is just so, so solid and, and Spartan. And I feel that you and I have been fortunate enough to, to have partners of, of that caliber and certainly our, our teammates and, and bring out the best in us. So when I've seen it work well in the military is when the team is really, really solid at home. Mm-hmm. But I think something that I've come to, to really appreciate, and especially over the last eight weeks in with coronavirus and working from home and just being around more is that there is no substitute for presence, right? It's physical presence, but it's also presence of mind, having your attention mm-hmm. and your focus be in the here and now, leaving your phones outside of the room and really being immersed with whoever it is you're trying to connect with. And I've just, I've seen that over eight weeks and how my daughters engage with me and how I engage with them. And there's just no substitute for that. And and there's no getting this time back. So you talk about silver linings and benefits of benefits of, of challenging circumstances. For me, that's probably been one of the biggest ones of coronavirus is just more presence and more appreciation for what that truly means and how big of a difference that makes in terms of connecting with, with my children. So how good are those smiles when they just like, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. Or when they, when they come and they, they turn and they seek you out and they, they crawl over to you and then just turn around and lean back. And like, all they want to do is be as close to you as possible and just exist in your space. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's so the most amazing. powerful thing in the world. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and we're just getting started, right? 10 months, like. It's, oh, it's yeah. <laughs> it is. I, I will say I'm glad in some ways I miss the beginning and there were certainly a lot of precious moments in the beginning, but there was not a lot of sleep. So I'm, I'm really thankful now that the girls are sleeping through the night and yeah. um, it allows uh, both my wife and I to, Kim and I to show up and, and be more present and aware and remember <laughs> the times that we spend with the girls because it was rough for a few months. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I, 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 I it to, um, to seal training, except in seal training, there's a bell that you can ring to, to stop <laughs> and, and get warm and eat donuts. And it's kind of like seal training, but there's no, uh, there's no bell to ring. So. Yeah. You were talking about COVID-19, obviously, and what we're in right now. You and another friend of ours, Andrew Huberman, wrote an awesome article in <clears throat> Fast Company. I really liked the part about the mini sub, but what is a mini sub? Maybe <laughs> you could just take us through that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I I had the good fortune to spend almost three and a half years on a on a mini submarine team, and we call them SEAL delivery vehicles, SDV team. So I was at SDV team two based out of Little Creek, Virginia. And I think everyone has this perception of the SEAL teams and the US military and all our power and technology and money that we spend, that we have the latest and greatest cutting edge equipment and everything is stealth bombers and super slick and fast and and really high speed. The SDV is is the exact opposite of that. It's like, imagine... (laughs) an Atari video game um, <laughs> that you play in a closet that's filled with ice cold water and you sit in there for eight hours. And that's pretty much what an STV oh. is like. So STV stands for seal delivery vehicle. They're a mini submarine that essentially 
we can launch off of bigger, bigger submarines. So a ballistic missile submarine will have a dry deck shelter that sits on the top. Inside that shelter will sit a mini submarine. And we use these mini submarines to deploy small teams of SEALs to go do sensitive operations, get people, materials onto beaches, into environments that we don't really want anyone to know uh, that we were ever there. So the way that uh, an SDV is set up is up front, you have a pilot and a navigator and they sit side by side and in the back of the boat and then behind the pilot and navigator, they lean up against a wall and behind them sits a series of batteries, basically a bunch of cell phone batteries. And then on the other side of that battery compartment is a small space where you put four seals in the back. And typically you would think that we would send small seals to STV teams, but for whatever reason, they send the biggest seals possible to an STV team. <laughs> and so the pilot and navigator in charge of the boat and they drive the, the STV to where we need to go. And the team in the back is called your special reconnaissance team, typically a sniper, communications person, a medic, and an officer. And when you put that team in the back of the boat, the way that it ends up coming to life is that uh, I would sit I would sit here, next to me would sit another seal, in my lap would sit another seal, and then the, my neighbor's lap would sit another seal. So we'd have four seals. Uh, and then we'd pull in our weapons and comms and equipment and all the various gear. And then they would slide these door doors closed. The doors have seams, so water is flowing from outside the ocean into the sub. And you're on you're on a regulator, so you're breathing oxygen. Sometimes you have a full mask. But by the time everything comes in and the thing fills up with water, you have about this much room to move around. So you're looking for right, where's my emergency regulator? There are no lights. It's it's essentially pitch black because we're driving these things at night and what? You don't want to have any, any signature, so you can't really see very well, but you can feel for your emergency regulator and you say, okay, all right, we're good. And it's, Wait, the guy's literally on your lap? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's no space, not another seat. No, there's no, there's no oh seats. There's just, it's, a, it's a small, little, tiny closet. And so typically you would have communications, maybe one person be wearing comms and would be able to talk to the front of the boat, but the comms always they always go out, they never work. And so there's a little light in the back of the boat that you have some codes that you've developed where they signal with certain flashes of light to tell you where you're at on your operation and, and what's going on. But it's interesting. So when they flood the boat up with water, at first it feels really good because you've actually been sitting in this thing and the, the shelter is really hot until they fill it up with water. And so you're, you've been, you're in the full wetsuit and you have all your gear and people are sitting in your laps and you're sweating and you're hot kind of dehydrated. They fill it up with water and they close the, the submarine doors. They open the dry deck door and then you drive the mini submarine out. And at first, for the first 15 or 20 minutes, it feels great. The way that we drive these submarines or navigate these submarines, we drive them about 10 to 15 feet uh, depth of water. So we, we call it flying. So you're flying the STV at 10 to 15 feet of water and you're going to be in there for several hours. And so you go through this this process of the first hour, uh, you start, you feel pretty good. And then you start to feel a little bit cold. And the second hour you get even colder. And so you pee in your wetsuit and that warms you up. And so you feel good for a little bit. And then the third hour you run out of pee and now you're really cold and you're starting to cramp, um, but there's nowhere to stretch. Uh, and so you're just kind of existing in your cramps and you're stuck and you just kind of fight a little bit in the back of the boat. And then after a period of time, because we're driving these at 10 to 15 feet of water, you're susceptible to the open ocean swells. And so you're getting that rocking motion and the back and forth and the up and down. And so if you're like me, 
and you have the unfortunate genetic disposition that you get seasick, now you're seasick and you have no horizon to look at. So you have no frame of reference. So you're just in this black cold box and you're seasick. And then you start throwing up in your regulator and dealing with that. And so it's this, it's just kind of an archaic torture device for, for guys. So you're in there for, you know, five, six, seven hours, whatever it is, you get dropped off. And that's purely your ride to leave the boat to go do your work. Whether you're going on shore, you're going off and doing something different. That's kind of your ride to work. It's so wild now because that was 10, 15 years ago that I was doing the SDV work. And at the time it was a miserable experience, but it was a deeply gratifying experience when you finish an uh, exercise or an operation or a mission or whatever, it, this real sense of accomplishment, like, wow, that was really special. That was cool. But at the time it was also, man, that really sucked. That was hard. But as I look back, those are some of my fondest memories and some of probably my greatest growth opportunities in the teams was that time in the back of the boat alongside those guys. And so Andrew and I wrote this, wrote this article where we talked about, you know, how can you navigate stress and really stress that's unbounded and it doesn't have a finite stop and start point and you know kind of similar to what we are experiencing with corona 19 right now and that which just a lot to process and deal with and how do you deal with how do you how can you move through that and come out of it stronger than you went in and so some of those lessons i learned from the back of the inside the back of the stv some of them i learned during hell week some of them during operations but we really teased out three things and, and for those of you that don't know Andrew. Andrew's a neuroscientist out of Stanford, does a lot of work in neuroplasticity and growth mindset. And really, what are the natural protocols, things that we can do using vision and breath work and other tools that we have at our disposal to bring out the best and get the best from our brain, regardless of the environments. And so Andrew and I talked about what were some of my experiences? What does some of the neuroscience say? And we, we kind of settled on these three principles or three things that you can do if you're facing chronic stress or stress of an unbounded uh, nature. And they were very simple things that all of your listeners would already be familiar with, but I think it helps mm -hmm. to to talk about them because they're powerful and they're, they're things that we in the SEAL teams, and I imagine a lot of high performers use to be successful in the face of stress and challenging circumstances. And the three things are really, if you're faced with something that is overwhelming and you don't know how to process um, something of a large magnitude, recognize that you control the horizon, that you control the finish line, and you can move that into a point that feels manageable for you. And that gives you the confidence that, hey, I can pursue to this point, I have the capabilities that I need to pursue to this horizon. And then once you get to that point, reassess and then move the horizon again and continue to play this game of breaking a big thing that seems overwhelming down into manageable parts. And I know people do this in a lot of forms in the in SEAL training and specifically Hell Week. This is something that the people that are successful do a really good job at. And the people that aren't, they allow themselves to get overwhelmed in a given moment or by the magnitude of staying awake for a week and being cold and wet and all these things. And they lose perspective. And so those that are able to adjust that horizon to, I'm going to make it to the next meal. I'm going to make it through this day. Or sometimes it's, man, I don't know how far I can make it, but I know I can see a hundred more feet. And I'm pretty sure I can make it 100 more feet. So I'm going to focus on doing that. And once I get there, I'm going to celebrate that win. And then I'll figure out how far I can, I can go next. So mm -hmm. that was really the first thing is a sense of overwhelm. The second one is this idea is when you feel a loss of control or that you don't have, that you have a perceived sense of an inability to control a situation, oftentimes the default is to freeze and hunker down 
and weight. And what we'd say is the best thing that you can do is actually to exert control. Find a small thing that you can do, even if it's seemingly unrelated, and exert control over your environment, over yourself, over your body, over your breath, whatever that thing is for you. And just by being in control, it flexes those control circuits in the brain and gives you a greater sense of control and allows you to expand your spheres of influence and effectiveness in in an environment, regardless of the circumstances. And then the last thing we talked about was this idea that if you're feeling chronic stress and really high levels of stress can feel very isolating and make you feel alone. And obviously that's compounded by all the social distancing measures that are in place right now. But um, the thing that that we settled on that you can do, the best thing that you can do if you're feeling isolated and alone as a result of stress is to find ways to identify and serve the needs of others, right? And again, it doesn't have to be a big lift. It can be a very small thing, but just having that mindset of, all right, I'm going to look for what can I do for my neighbor? What can I do for my wife? What can I do for a friend? Even just a two-minute call to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. Just the fact that you get out of your own head and that you get into this mindset of, finding a need and serving that need for someone else makes you feel more connected to that person, lessens the stress and the suffering that you're feeling. And so those were the three things that that we talked about uh, in that article. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. You mentioned real-time breath work before. Would you be able to take our listeners through that? For sure. So I, I, I'll be the first to say that I am not an expert on this, but I know an expert and Andrew recently has been talking a lot about this one specific breathing protocol that seems to have an extra calming effect. So you have this, this tool, your breath, and you can deploy it intentionally to affect your physiology in a way that uh, allows you to, to be grounded and more present and calm. And what he has said uh, of late and coming from some emerging research is, I guess prior to this point, the short answer is if your exhale is longer than your inhale, that is going to to have a naturally calming effect. So if I do a quick inhale, followed by a long exhale, that's going to calm me and make me more present. Conversely, if I have a long inhale, followed by a quick exhale, that's going to have an upregulating or energizing effect on me. And that's going to give me energy, prime me for performance. Uh, And those are two very small things that you can do in intentional ways that you can deploy your breath to map yourself to the environment that you're facing. But one thing that Andrew has been talking a lot about recently that I think is really fascinating is this concept of a double inhale followed by a long exhale. And the double inhale um, is bringing more oxygen in And the long exhale is expelling CO2 from your system. And so when you feel the need to breathe, it's not actually a desire for oxygen. And and you know the physiology of this better than I do, but it's not that your body is saying, I need oxygen. It's your body saying, I need to get rid of carbon dioxide, that I want to dump this carbon dioxide off out of my system. So as CO2 builds up, that is what's signaling your body, I need to breathe and I need to breathe to expel carbon dioxide. And a side product of that is that you're getting more oxygen. So a double inhale followed by a long exhale looks like this. And so there's something very powerful about that extra little inhale, that extra dose of oxygen followed by that long, smooth exhale. And it can be out of your nose, out of your mouth, Um, we talk a lot about the benefits of nasal breathing and what that does for you. But the truth be told, if you're congested or whatever, you can exhale out of your mouth or your nose. The the effects of dumping CO2 and bringing in oxygen are the same. So that would be one example. Let's do five, double inhale, 
easy exhale together. Just give give the listeners an opportunity in real time. Yeah. Just to experience it. Because I feel like just we have to walk on our own to really feel and understand things. Because I'm learning that a lot of knowing and really understanding, you actually have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So I just think this is a good opportunity. Yeah. So we'll do an inhale. And then at the top of our inhale, we'll do another small inhale. And then we'll do a long exhale out. Here we go. Okay. One more. Okay, that was great. I felt I, it. I went I, short I, exhale at the beginning and then I caught your rhythm and I, I feel in my body, I feel the relaxation. That was great. I, I, I think it's it's such a powerful point that that you just brought out that that oftentimes you can watch something, you can read something, you can learn something new, and that can be really exciting and that can feel like progress. But progress isn't really realized until you put something into action and you intuitively make the connection between how your actions are affecting you and drawing that connection between your actions and their effects. That's really where progress is made and where benefits are realized because the more that you can connect those circuits and, and, and build really strong connections around that, the more that these practices and your learnings are going to endure and just going to be a, become a part of who you are and the way you show up. So I, I love that. I love that you call that out that, that the action part of this is really critical and important. Thank you. Let's, let's talk about your amazing company made for, because I feel like that just shifts us right there. Can you tell our listeners how this came to be and where we're at today? Yeah, I'll try to give the short version. So when I was in the SEAL teams, specifically going through SEAL training, you know, my class, we started with around 220 people and we came out of Hell Week with 36, and the class went on to graduate with 17 original people from that class. So you have all of these people that had exerted a lot of effort and put in a lot of work to just to make it to SEAL training. They all had the best of intentions and had to jump through a number of hoops to get there, right? And so you look at across these 220 people, all physically fit, strong, all look the part. And over the course of eight months, people start deciding that the program is not for them. They ring the bell, even though they probably all read all the information and had everything they, they, they knew the program inside and out. At some point they decided, Hey, I do not want to continue. And they, and they ring the bell. And so it's interesting. We got to hell week and I don't remember, I think we're around 120 people, maybe 140 starting hell week. And again, all physically fit, all look the part, we came out of Hell Week with 36 people. And even in the first 10 minutes of Hell Week, and Hell Week is around the seventh week of training, even in the first 10 minutes of Hell Week, people were quitting, right? And you can only get so cold, so wet, so tired, so exhausted, so whatever in 10 minute period of time. But people were deciding, I can't continue and, and ringing the bell and leaving at the very, very beginning of Hell Week in 10 minutes time. 
And there's no question they had done a lot of things that were much harder prior to that point. And so what I found very interesting about training was that oftentimes the biggest, fastest, strongest people were some of the first to quit. Those people that you would look at and you say, man, right out of central casting, that's a seal. That's going to be the person standing there at the end of training. They didn't make it for whatever reason. And the people that were left at the end were rather unremarkable, right? You wouldn't have been able to pick them out from a lineup at the beginning of the program. And so for me, I think that was the first time that I connected these dots around. There's something really interesting about a mindset and what it means to have a mindset and and to lean into some very foundational practices and how powerful mindset and foundational practices can be as it relates to really high levels of performance. So fast forward, I I spent my time in the teams and then I went to business school and I took a lot of classes in business school. Many of them were over my head and I'm not great at accounting, finance and all that stuff. But one of the classes that I took that really left an impact on me was an undergraduate class that I audited taught by this woman, Angela Duckworth. And Angela, all of her research is around grit as a determining factor for success. And so the ability to stick to something far outweighs IQ, income level, education of parents, just the ability to stick to something is a high determinant of success. So Angela was teaching this course to freshmen and sophomores. And granted, I was in a master's program. So I was the old dude sitting in the back of the class. And all the young kids were like, who's the old guy in the back of the class? But the, cl- the course was an introduction to positive psychology. And the class, and so for, for those of you that, that don't know about, much about positive psychology, when I first heard the term, I was like, yeah, that sounds kind of woo. I'm not really, I don't know about that. But the more I learned, the more I recognized just how powerful it was and how much of it mapped to my prior experience. And so the whole field of positive psychology is based on this premise that there are two sides to the equation. One side is you can focus on treating disease and minimizing risk and minimizing negative behaviors and outcomes. That's half of the equation. And traditionally, where the field of psychology and psychiatry and, and even some of medicine operates. The other half of the equation is what are the things that promote the best in us that we can be in pursuit of, whether they're environmental factors or small actions and decisions that we can make? What are those things that we can do that helps us leverage our innate wiring and grow what's good inside us? And so this class, Introduction to Positive Psychology, they taught, uh, talked a lot about what the research was saying and a lot of the research mapped to my prior experience in the SEAL teams. And I was like, man, there's something really cool here. I'd love to do something with this in the future, but I don't know what that is. Fast forward a few, uh, a couple years. I was at the time I was at Google and I was on, uh, took a week to take a vacation with some friends. And my friend Blake during the surf trip asked a question to this group of guys. He said, Hey, if you could work on anything and it was purely a passion project and money was no object, what would you work on? What would you pursue? And went around the table and it got to me, I, I said, man, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm fascinated by this idea of human potential and helping people realize their full potential. Because what I saw in the SEAL teams was that there was a mindset, there was no, you know, gifts that people were born with. There was some basic things that people could do that anyone possesses, that if you can connect to it, you can do a lot of really powerful things. And so I said, I would love to work on something in that, in this aspect, in this space of human potential and helping people realize their potential and perform at a high level. And shortly thereafter, you know, Blake reached out. He said, I love that. I'm super into that. Let's figure out how to turn this into a project that we can work on. And out of that, uh, eventually emerged made for 
very early on, we brought Andrew Huberman on, a neuroscientist out of Stanford, and kept adding other advisors, yourself included. And basically, it's interesting, the evolution of our journey. I think we came to this with this idea that I was exposed to a lot of interesting things in the SEAL teams. Blake was exposed to a lot of interesting things just from his personal pursuits and passions, and that we would bring in experts and we would uncover what are the latest and greatest things that we can connect people with that'll help them perform at the highest levels possible. But the more advisors that we brought on, the more research we did, the more reflecting we did, the more we recognized that it's not the latest and greatest cutting edge practices that make the biggest difference for people. Rather, it is a reconnection to some very fundamental practices of body and mind that help people unlock the best in themselves. And these are things that we all are aware of, right? And so it made for, we, we have uh, months dedicated towards hydration and nutrition and movement and gratitude and connection and nature and rest and all of these very elemental basic practices that we all intuitively know are very good for us, but for one reason or another, we've grown disconnected from their power and our capacity to engage those practices with efforts, both small and large, to unlock the best in ourselves. And so that's where we netted out. And what we ended up developing alongside our advisors was a 10-month program where each month focuses on one foundational habit we call them baseline elevating practices. So something that you do that not only affects your capacity to do that better, but affects your capacity to do everything in your life better, more energy, better connected, just moving through life in a more of a thriving state of mind. So every month we send our members a kit in the mail and inside the kit is a publication with the relevant science and research and benefits of a given practice told in a narrative, engaging style format, a physical tool that someone would use over the course of the month, and then a challenge designed around what's the smallest thing that we could get you to do where you would realize a benefit of your actions. So we call this the minimum viable effort. And the idea is that over these 10 months, by focusing on one thing at a time, you start to unlock some very transformational yet subtle shifts in both your behaviors and mindsets. And so that when you come out of the 10 months in playing the long game on these simple practices, you are moving through the world differently, but in a more purposeful, energetic, connected way that not only helps you be better, but helps everyone around you be better. And so we have this tagline and at made for where we say, you know, we fundamentally believe that a better world begins with the best you. And so we want to help you direct your effort in an intentional way to bring out the best in yourself. And that's, and that's really what made for is. And it's, it's interesting. Andrew talks about this concept of neuroplasticity, this phenomenon. And he said, you know, really there, there are two ways to, to change the brain. One way is through a short, intense experience, and that can be positive or negative, right? It can be the birth of a child, the first time you have sex. It can be combat or food poisoning or a car accident. The short, intense experiences can literally rewire your brain. And prior to the age of 25, our brain is is more plastic uh, than it is at later stages, but you can actually rewire your brain over the entire course of your life. So that's one way to change your brain. The other way to change your brain is through small, consistent steps done over time with awareness of the of the effects that your efforts are creating. And that's really the model that Made For is built on top of and how we help people shift their mindsets and behaviors in, in powerful ways over time. So the whole program is designed 
to be done in an analog nature. So one of our premises is that if you have to look to a device or an app or a screen to understand how you're performing or how you're feeling, you've missed a critical step. And the most important first step is to intuitively understand how your actions are making you feel and affecting the way that you're showing up in the world. That's got to happen first. You can add devices down the road and to, to achieve higher levels of performance or whatnot. But as a starting point, you first need to connect your actions with their benefits off screens. And so our whole program is designed to be done off screens and is analog in nature. That said, we offer a whole ecosystem of support over the course of 10 months because frankly, it's hard to play the long game. So you know, we launch new classes every month and you could go through as an individual and never once engage with your classmates, but we have private communities where members can engage with other members or with our advisors and ask questions and share wins and share frustrations. We do texting, we have weekly video calls, and we really try to meet people where they're at to support them in their journey. But I think the most important takeaway or the most important aspect of Made For is that the value of Made For is not in the science or the tools or even in the steps that we give people. The value of Made For is that we compel you to exert effort in a way that delivers benefit in your life and that we do this over a 10-month period of time. And so really, it's your effort that's unlocking the benefits and we try to help guide you and support you uh, in that journey. But that's, uh, that's Made For. It's really fun to hear you talk about that. The simple habits for the highest performers, it's all about the basics. Think of an athlete or a Roger Federer hitting a forehand. He's hit thousands and thousands of the most basic shot over and over. But his depth of that shot is insane, right? His forehand's not like your forehand called the same shot. But that's there's so much power in this simplest fundamentals. And I mean, I'm beyond grateful to be included at all in Made For, just the fact to be connected to you and Blake Mikoski, the other co-founder, just has an enormous spirit and heart and just explodes with positive energy, I feel like, when mm-hmm. you meet Blake. And obviously giving back him creating Tom's with the buy one shoe, give a pair of shoes back. It's It's threaded in him for just the caring, giving back and listening to you, just your journey. And, and I wrote down stick, you know, with Angela, positive psychology, it's stick to something. And clearly you endure a lot in SEALs, even in the article where you push the finish line, you figured that out in hell week, like hell yeah. week. And you have to have that mental connection to know that you're going to get through this, but you just have to keep pushing. And when I think about made for with the 10 months, habit change is really hard, but it takes time. Like Andrew with the neuroplasticity, it's fun when intuitively we know water's good for us. We know connection, we know breath. And it's fun when our intuition is backed by science, but still it's like, then what? Okay, I know I should drink water. I know I should move. I know I should do these things. But then what? And that's where I think is really powerful is you provide the guidance, the clear plan, and it's manageable and it builds. The fact that it's 10 months, I think is really important. This sounds like a long time, but when you build these simple habits and then you build another one and then you build another one and pretty soon now you're starting to feel you're starting to see the world different, feel different because you're connected and you've done the work, Mm -hmm. right? That's it. You've done, you've done the work, you've exerted the effort. You have 
realized benefits from the effort that you put in. And it's funny, when I talk to new classes of members that are coming on board, what I, what I tell them, I said, the goal of Made For is not that you graduate this program and you have a list of 10 things that you have to knock off every day. That is absolutely not the goal. The goal of Made For is when you've graduated this program, you recognize that you're not a machine, you're a human, life gets a vote, life's gonna knock you off course from time to time. And when it does, or when you go off course by your own volition, give yourself some grace, recognize that you've gone off course, and know what it takes to know that you have these practices that you can lean on to get back on track, right? And you don't know them because of a piece of science you read or, or an, because an advisor gave you some pithy quote, you know them because you have connected with these practices. You've been intentional about exerting your effort in a way that you have fostered awareness around the action and the benefits delivered to you in a very real, tangible way. And so that, I think, is probably the most powerful thing. And really what we're giving our members is that when they graduate from the program, they know what home base feels like or what practices they can lean on, what right feels like. And no longer when they get knocked off course, are they looking for a quick fix or a fad or some you know marketing hyped product? They're saying, no, actually, I have all these tools and capacity inside me and I can lean back into that. And that's where home base is. And from that, I can grow and move through the world and, and thrive and, and you know show up for others. So that, that's how I think about it. Have you had any comments or feedback from members that have gone through the program that kind of bring joy to you, your heart? Oh my God, so many. I mean, you and I were talking about this. We had a woman that was going through the movement month. And so we have a month totally focused on movement. And like all of our months, it's a little bit of a counterintuitive approach. And, and, and you obviously helped us design our POV and the program and the steps over the course of that month. But this woman said to us, she said, you know, I read the publication and I saw the challenge and she said, I have to admit, I was a little bit dismissive of it. She said, uh, I don't know about this. I, I exercise and I do my thing and like, it's fine. And, but she said, for whatever reason, I decided, all right, I'm going to do it. I paid for this program. I'm going to do the work and do what they tell me. And she said, when she got to the end of that month, she recognized, she made this connection that prior to starting that month, she thought she was 65 years of age. She thought that her best days were behind her. And she never realized that, that that was something that she internalized. But she said, you know, I thought my best days were behind me. But now after going through this month, she said, I recognize my best days are here now and are in front of me. And I'm excited about that. And so such a subtle shift. And we wow. have very basic movements, and a, and a, but a powerful perspective that month that unlocked that for that woman. And again, it's not because of anything that she read it was because she exerted effort in an intentional way with a little bit of awareness. And, and that's where that left her. You know, we have a month focused on gratitude where one of the exercises is an, is an intimate exercise around sharing gratitude with someone else. And this woman reached out to us after a few months after gratitude. And she said, Hey, I have to share something with you. I have had a tenuous relationship with my mother-in-law going on 20 years. And it's affected not only my relationship with her, but my relationship with my husband and my children. And it's just been the default nature of our relationship. She said, I decided to do that exercise because you prompted me. 
with her. And so I, I went through this exercise with her and she said, as soon as I did that, it was like we both dropped our guards and connected in a way that we've never connected before. And all of a sudden my relationship with her was better. My relationship with my husband, my children, everything was just better. And that was really powerful. And so she shared that with us and we were like, man, blown away. And she said, but wow. the bitter sweet aspect of this is that a month after I did that, she had an aneurysm, my mother-in-law had an aneurysm and passed away. And we would have never, you know, no one could have predicted that it came out of the blue, but she says, I have no regrets. And had I not take, had the courage to do that exercise when I did my relationships and, you know, the things that I would have carried past that would have affected me forever. Um, so, you know, those are, those are two examples. We wow. have people that talk about, you know, graduating the program and the way that people engage with them, tell them that, Hey, you're just, you seem to exude a level of calmness that you haven't before or that like your light is shining brighter or that you're able to let things roll off your back and just seem to deal with stress and friction of life better. But it's interesting. We, we're very thoughtful and intentional in how we design every aspect of this program. And we, it was very important to us that science and evidence-based research be at the, be the entry point for all of these months, that there was nothing that we put in there just because uh, we felt like, oh, you need to have this, you need to do this. Like everything is very heavily researched and supported by science, but we can design the program. People are going to connect the dots in unique ways and unlock unique benefits for them. And so I'd say that's probably been the recurring theme is that every member is a little bit different. Everyone unlocks some different aspect of their life or, or changes in some different way that serves them well. And so just hearing that and having people share that with us is, is so cool. And, and you were along for, for the creation of this, for this whole thing. And it's really cool to look back, right? We started working on this, you know, a few years ago now, but to look back with where we started in terms of, Hey, we want to help people be their best selves. And we want to use. We want to make sure that we enter into the space with a high degree of integrity, and that we design a, a program that is accessible by everyone and relevant by everyone. And then, and then we started throwing ideas up on the board. And at the time, it was it's like, man, these are very simple things. Like, this doesn't seem like what the market wants. It seems like what the market needs, but not what people want. Is this going to work as a as a business, man? I don't know. But we kept, you know, we used our our greater intention of what we wanted to do and just kept taking steps in that towards that intention and towards that direction. And, and now we've ended up in this place where people are, are really connecting with their own power and bringing their best to the world. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's cool to, uh, to see what a, what a small team can do and, and the positive outsized effects that they can have. So thank you for uh, being a part of it, Roy. No, thank you. It's fun to hear those stories. Good shivers. <laughs> it's like, uh, and, and you just think like people are changing their own lives. Like you said, like, cause they're doing the work, but the fact that, like you said, with the, the lady, she's like, well, you prompted me, you guided me, I'm going to do this. And she was able to resolve that, uh, relationship before the aneurysm. I mean, that's like life changing to have that opportunity, but that guidance, the support, what an amazing community <laughs> you've created. And it, it holds true for any level of athlete too. It's the simple things, right? They're, they would tell it be the first to say hydration, <laughs> got to hydrate, got to recover, got to get your sleep, got all these simple things. They, but they do it religiously and not all of us do that. Early on in the program, and 
I talk about this because you can have the best of intentions and do everything right and know that everything you're doing is, is, is to serve a bigger intention or greater purpose, but still have a tremendous amount of self-doubt along your journey. When you're creating something from scratch, there's so much ambiguity and so much, it's hard to see through the fog and that fog uh, at times can, can produce doubt. But we were doing a call with a member, one of our very first classes, and we were doing a call. She was a few months into the program and she was giving us feedback and saying, you know, you could tweak this. I like this. I didn't like that. And, you know, generally it was, it was a good call and made us feel good. And, and then um, we we're getting ready to edit it. And she said, Oh, I have one more thing. And we're like, Oh God, here it comes. Like, here's the, here's the bad thing. And she said, I have to, I have to give you a lot of props. I want to commend you on something. And we were like, Oh man, what, what do you want to commend us for? And she said, you know, it takes a lot of balls to charge someone money and then tell them to drink water. I commend you on it because it works. It's, it's made a big difference. And so, you know, we talk about hydration as it's 50% hydration and understanding what it means to be hydrated and benefits of that and how at a low level of dehydration has some very real cognitive and physical impacts on you. But the other half of it is what does it mean to pay attention to a small thing that you do every day and how it affects you? And that's, that is a powerful thing that can be mapped to a lot of areas of your life. But it was a glimmer of, of, uh, of hope for us and a glimmer of certainty that like, okay, maybe we're on the right track and we're not crazy. Um, so uh, for anyone that's, that's thinking about creating something from scratch, as long as your intention is good and, and you believe in what you're doing, keep taking steps because you will, uh, you'll end up creating something, um, creating something pretty powerful and good. And the world needs more of that. And, and like your dad's advice that you shared is do the hard thing, right? Or take the hard <laughs> path. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but, no, but it's worth I, it, right? Yeah. I've always been envious of, and I know everyone has these types of friends that are naturally gifted. It's they're good at math or they're good runners or they're good at, um, you know, playing card, whatever the thing is, people have these kind of natural gifts. And I, I'm one of those people that I, I've never figured out what my natural gift is in that I, I feel like it's always, and maybe my, my, in some ways my dad has cursed me that it's always been the hard way that I just, I have to work really hard at things and kind of grind through things. And that has allowed me to, to get through life. So obviously a lot of high performers listen to this, but anyone listening that has hopes of being a high performer, has hopes of doing something grand that they may feel out of reach, just let me be the first to tell you that if if you can find ways to self-reward and just take small steps and, and grind, like you can achieve anything. Uh, and I fundamentally believe that. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I'm taking a lot of your time, but can I shift back just a couple more questions? Yeah, man. I love this. This is awesome. So the idea is take us on a game day. It's easy for me. Or, and I feel like for maybe a lot of us to relate to you playing in the NBA, getting ready for the game going to go out your shoot around the way you prep your body or uh or maybe more traditional sports but as a seal i'm not sure everyone understands what the I'm just thinking of the intensity of going on a mission or your game day and i know you can't really necessarily share possibly a lot but you think of like an athlete my sleep's really important so i'm gonna try to get my sleep before my big match or my game but circumstances I, I imagine are different, but I'm curious. Yeah. So just, just to try to think through what's the game day like for, okay, we have this mission, 
what's the night before? What's the prep? What's the, your equipment's a lot different. Your Sure. So I, I'll talk about it in two ways. First, um, I'm going to, I'm going to start with training and then I'll talk about, um, in the operational environment, but, and I'll, I'll come back. Hell week is just kind of a good example of this, but typically when you would think of, you're going to do, you're about to do the hardest race of your life, right? And, and hell week being up to that point, the hardest race that using race as a, as a kind of a loose term for it, but the hardest race that anyone is ever going to do. And so if you were to think about that, you would say, okay, I'm going to work backwards from hell week and I'm going to have a perfect training program. I'm going to do all of the little things right. And so I'm going to show up so that I am at my peak and ready to perform at my best over the course of this hell week. And it couldn't be the furthest from reality, right? <laughs> Prior to Hell Week, SEAL candidates have been going through training for approximately six weeks. Um, everyone's got some form of low-grade pneumonia. Everyone has been um, is dealing with some form of overuse injuries, whether it's in their knees or their shins or their shoulders or their backs. Um, everyone is broken and battered and tired. And then before Hell Week starts, you actually get locked down for a couple of days. Sometimes you're sleeping in a tent on the beach, um, or you may be inside a classroom, and you're kept in a, in a state of, of suspense where you don't know when Hell Week is going to start, right? So Hell Week, Hell Week lasts about five and a half days, and it can start at any point in this 48-hour period. And so you think to yourself, all right, I'm sick, I'm broken, I'm beat up, and then I'm on edge every time someone comes in this room. I'm like, all right, is it go time? Are we ready? Are we starting this? And so when Hell Week finally does start, you're already just spent. You're tired. You're, you're a little bit frazzled and frayed. And it's the exact opposite of what a, a professional athlete would want to do on game day, right? But what it teaches you is that you have tremendous capacity and ability to perform even when you think you've you've exerted all possible effort and that you've, you've pushed past the point of physical uh, endurance and capability and, the, and the, these bounds of, of what you would normally think is what's possible, that you can go further than that. And you can go further than that by leaning into your mind and what your mind can help your body do. So that is in training, but it's very important that that is a, it's a critical part of training because it's not every day that an operation goes as planned, right? So we may design in and try to structure our routine overseas in a way that because we operate at night, conduct operations at night, we're typically sleeping for most of the day. We're still trying to get workouts in, we're eating, we're doing intelligence briefings, we're getting the, the lowdown, all right, hey, what's, what's the target tonight? What are we doing? Everyone's got their locker room and their, their basic locker set up with all their kit and everything's, everything is ready to go at any given time. And so some days there are you are able to follow the rhythm to a T. You can eat when you have your scheduled meal. You can get your intelligence briefing on time. You can do uh, the operation at you know the hour that you had planned and everything. Everyone is prepped and trained. That's kind of a perfect Sunday game day and, and how you would want it to go down. But the enemy gets a vote and the operational tempo and the pace and everything that's going on changes, right? And so there are times where you may get an emergent target or something, a fleeting opportunity that you have to go conduct an operation during the day 
daytime, or you have to conduct back-to-back night operations, or you're toggling between maybe you have to do a daytime operation and that night you have to do a nighttime operation. And so very quickly, the routine and the rhythm and everything that you try to do to make sure that you're set up for success goes out the window and you have to lean back on what you, that mindset that you cultivated in training, knowing that like, Hey, I can rally and I can perform. And I know my teammates can do the same because we've all gone through the same program and you do what you have to do to be successful on target and be effective on the operation. But that said, and I think this comes back to these baselines is that, you know, it's very hard to build resilience on the ground, right? If you are Mm. under, and we talked about at the beginning of of the program, we talked very uh, we talked briefly about how can you build real-time resilience and use breath as a way to reset. And, uh, and But we also talked about tending your baselines. And I think this is an example of why it's so important that when you have opportunities to build resilience and to uh, take care of yourself to do so, because you never know when a global pandemic is going to hit when your wife is going to get sick, when your babies are going to have issues, when you're going to be forced with a changing work environment, you don't know when life is going to throw these curveballs at you. So you, it's just imperative that you are taking these opportunities and these small moments to build your capacity, build your resilience so that when it, the time is called and you have to perform and you don't get to create the perfect structure and routine around performance, you don't need to. You know you can. I can tap into this this reserve that I've built up and exhausted if it needs be, and then even go a little bit further. And then once it's done, I can recharge the way that I, I see best. So that's a typical game day. If there, if, if you can even call it that. I would imagine going through hell week and knowing that you, you took those steps, you know, your body can do this and you know, the guy next to you can do it. And he didn't ring the bell. That's a knowing in the body that I can do this. He can do this. It really doesn't matter whether I'm things will go perfect or not. We're still going to show up. We're still going to be able to to do this. The the athletes I've been around, you try to control as much as you can with the environment because there are things changing, but not to the degree that you just described. <laughs> there is definitely an extra percentage that our bodies as humans can tap into. Naturally, I think we have some governors to to keep us safe, right? But mm-hmm. we can blow past those and there is a lot more. It's cool to hear you talk about the way that the athletes think about this. And I think it goes back to, again, Roger Federer and his forehand or why it's an imperative aspect of being performing at a very high level to have such a solid grounding in the fundamentals and the basics. Because when you encounter stress or high levels of stress or friction or you know, extreme weather or whatever the the conditions are that change on game day or when it's time to perform, Mm -hmm. you may lose some of that fine motor control and some of the, some of the benefits that you've been able to gain at the margins, but you quickly lean back and default on these fundamental gross motor movements. And if you can lean back into those and that can give you the certainty that allows you to perform at a very high level. So I imagine when you hear stories of Tiger Woods swinging golf clubs and his dad throwing tennis balls at him and trying to induce moments of friction and distraction or whatever. He knows that whatever else is going on, I can, I can block all that out and I can focus on these very basic things that I can control that are within my capacity. It's the same in, in SEAL teams. You know, we fire thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition every year. And you know, basically that when I 
pull out my weapon, I'm always going slack, sight, squeeze, right? I have the same basic talking points on how I fire a weapon and it doesn't ever change. I may move through it much faster and that allows me to do something where I can shoot a bunch of things very quickly. In your mind, you're saying like, man, he really moved quick, but actually I was just moving very smooth and smooth is fast. Quick is not fast. So, um, I know I went off on a few different tangents there, but I just, this, this return to the fundamentals and mastering the fundamentals allows you, gives you the confidence and the foundation you need to lean back into that when things go awry, because the only thing we know for certain is that at some point things are going to go awry. Like there it's very, it's the exception. Maybe if you're in Augusta playing at the masters, it's exceptional that you have perfect conditions. It's not what life's about. So. Yeah. What are the fundamentals for a seal? I would say shoot, move, and communicate are three aspects that everyone's got to be able to do when they come out of training and go to a team. And so on a SEAL team, every member of the team has an area of kind of domain expertise. So Mm -hmm. um, whether it's the medic or the communications person or the sniper or the JTAC that's calling and fires with aircraft or any number of, of these kind of skill sets, a navigator, a driver, a UAV operator, people might have a domain expertise in one given area, but we're all cross-trained across all these areas. So people can move and support one another as a uh, conditions in the battle space change. And we have to jump in and fill, fill gaps. So deep expertise in one area, but uh, cross-functional understanding of all the areas so that we can help and move and support one another, but all mapped to this mindset of, at the end of the day, the mission is what's driving everything. How can I be, in, how can I be effective, most effective in the environment, working towards achieving the mission that we're trying to achieve and supporting my teammates, empowering my teammates to be the best that they can be. And if everyone is going in with that mindset, you have a truly high-performing, effective force that um, is, is, is second to none. So, What was your skill, mm. your fundamental top skill? Just yeah, so I, so I was um, I was an officer in the teams, and at, at the way that it, it works in a SEAL team or in a SEAL platoon or a troop is that most of the most of the troop or that the the team that you're working with are enlisted um, operators, and so they have um, domain expertise again in comms or medic or sniper, um, whoever it is. And then you have a senior enlisted personnel who's the the chief troop chief, senior chief in the team. And their job is really to run the tactical operations and run all of those, the individual team members. And then the officer kind of sits above the senior enlisted personnel or senior enlisted um, operator on the team. And the officer's job is kind of 20% looking into the team and understanding what's going on and 80% looking up and out and managing the battle space and the assets and making sure that that the team is being put in the best situation possible to create the outcome that uh, the desired outcome and achieve the success of the mission. But the officer is never the one, if they're doing their job correctly, they're not the one kicking in the front door and they're not the one that's firing the, the shot that, um, that makes a difference. They're the one that is making sure that their people and the teams are getting everything that they need and that they're getting the support they need and that the communication is going both ways so that the team is set up for success. And so I would say that if, you know, what my skill set was or where I was directing my energy was really an understanding, um, the needs of my team members and serving those needs and giving them what they needed to be successful. Very cool. I hear you use the terminology map. We can map to this. So I could see that's one of the, your biggest strengths, right? Being able to see 
all these different maps, essentially listening to you talk. Yeah, you can see how you, you understand so many different aspects and how, and then link them together instantly. Uh, I just picked up, you were saying map too. Yeah. I didn't know if it was a, a seal language or something. It's, um, I hadn't heard it before. It's definitely something that we, that we use in the teams, but I don't know that it's unique to the teams, but it, it's cool that you, that you picked up on that aspect. And I would, I would not to bring it back to made for, but I would say that some of my favorite times at made for was when we had different domain experts. So you had you and John Rady, psychiatrist, prolific, really world-renowned psychiatrist and from Harvard and, and Andrew from Stanford in the neuroscience and Dave, you know, we had all of these different people around the table, all focused on one aspect of the program that maybe didn't necessarily map to movement or your experience or didn't map to the brain or didn't map to whatever the, whatever the thing is that we're talking about, but we're able to identify what are some common frameworks and themes that for someone's domain expertise and how can those interconnect and apply to the thing that we're trying to affect. And so it was really cool to hear these different perspectives and then start to tease out like, oh, wow, that pattern that applies to how the brain can, you know, neuroplasticity, how the brain can rewire itself also applies to the body and how the body can rewire itself through movement and how we can connect breath or exposure to nature and these patterns that we're seeing in nature map to the way that our eyes are designed to scan and the synchronicity between the way our eyes scan and the patterns, the fractal patterns that we see in nature, you start to see commonalities across different domains and then extract back from that and say, wow, there's something kind of powerful here. We can connect some dots in ways for people that maybe they didn't see before that are kind of powerful. So um, I love that you call that out. And I think that, yeah, it's... Uh, so that's what you did with the SEALs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, right? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. You're So you're, you're right. Yeah, to bring it full circle. I think that's a, it's a little bit of um, what I try to do. And I think what a lot of a lot of people just do in the teams naturally, or as a result of existing in that in that culture, benefiting from that culture is just, how can we draw on different areas and different domains to be the most effective in the environment or the against the situation or target that we're trying to that we're trying to address. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, that's what SEALs are best at is establishing, quickly establishing relevancy and being effective regardless of the environment, right? And so that that can mean that may mean that we're working in water, or it may mean that we're working in Iraq or Afghanistan. It may mean that we're working out of an embassy or that we're working with the State Department. We can work in a lot of different cultures and environments. And you know what I really, really love about SEALs and their mindset in the community is that you can take a SEAL and put them into an environment and they're not rigid. They're not, they're, they don't say, I have these standard operating procedures and this way of doing business and you will conform to me or I will like work my way through this. I'll pound my way through this wall and achieve. No, what they do is they, they observe and they follow kind of John Boyd's OODA loop. They observe, they orient, they decide, and they act. And they do this in such a way that at the end of the day, they recognize the goal here is to be effective and to be effective in a way that helps me achieve my desired end state. And that's what they work towards. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, it's a cool thing. For, for me, what I'm most interested in is how can we be in a state where we can respond to the environment in real time at our very best? 
Mm-hmm. And that's a constant adjustment, micro adjustments of all these different areas. But so what you just described, being able to observe and take things in and have our body and our mind in a state of calm and being able to react versus stiff and rigid, that that's the state I'm excited to explore on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so everything you've shared has been so amazing. People are going to hear things that you've said and it sparks different ideas for different people. And that's one of the most fun things I, I think out there is just how we can learn and then we take information and how then we can turn it, we can make it our own and we can add value to someone else or something else. It's like we're continuing this conversation of getting better, of growing. I, I, I think you have a beautiful mind and I love that you're creating this, this space and this forum to um, connect some of these dots because you are probably one of the most understated, unassuming people that I know, but you are one of these people that kind of connects disparate dots from different areas and and connect them in really powerful ways. And so um, it's cool to see you starting to take some of the first steps to create this form and this space in order to, to do that uh, with others and then also share that with more and more people. I think it's going to make a, a big difference in people's lives. So I'm glad you're doing this. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for the support. Yeah, man. Any, any time with you and any opportunity to, to talk is uh, is a joy. So I'm, uh, it's cool. I'm curious, your relationship around failure, fear and failure, but sometimes I notice athletes really take, they can really take a loss hard and really have that connected to the to their identity where it's mm-hmm. almost like, I don't feel, don't even want to show my face after losing. So I'm, I'm curious, do you, how do you separate that or do you, or just your thoughts on failure and, and, and how do you recover back to that growth positive mindset? Because in times during a match, during a game or fear creeps in or uncertainty, you can get that shift to a more negative state of mind. How do you recover that? I think it's a great question. I think there are a few things that come into this and and we've talked about this before, but this idea of a growth mindset and what does it mean to have a growth mindset? And so Carol Dweck out of Stanford is the woman responsible for doing the, the research around growth mindset and really educating the, the world about this around this. But the whole idea is that failure and setback and friction are not reflections of your self-worth and they're not even reflections of your ability when you're experiencing friction or you're experiencing challenging circumstances, that feeling that you get is actually you adapting and you growing and you getting better. And that's what a growth mindset means. And if you have a fixed mindset, it means that if I engage in something and I come up short or I fail or something is hard, then I, I experience that in a way that, that I tell myself that is a reflection on me and my sense of self-worth and and what I can bring to the world. And so it makes you feel less than rather than this recognition that, oh, this is actually what it feels like to get better, to learn, to grow. And so so that that's one way to think about setbacks and failure. The other thing that I think comes to play is is to recognize if you have a very strong sense of failure and you're experiencing that in a negative way, it probably is a signal to you that you are doing something that you care a lot about. Have you ever been on a mission and experienced fear where fear came into your body 
where it almost puts you back on your heels? And how do you get out of that? Or have you had a teammate that you noticed, wait, the guy next to me, it's not the normal guy next to me. Like something's off. Like I need to bring him back now or, or I'm, my life's in danger. It's just an intensity that normal people don't get. Yeah. So to me, fear is being in a situation that you feel you don't have control over and the effects are, the outcomes of that situation matter a great deal to you. I think everyone experiences fear different ways, right? Fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear of being in combat, something happens and something goes wrong. But what SEALs and what people in the military and people that can, you know, people in special operations get really good at is when things go wrong, quickly calibrating to what's within my control, what can I affect to get back to affecting the larger outcome that I'm trying to, affecting the mission and trying to do what I'm going to do. And so maybe somebody gets injured or uh, you land on the wrong target or something, uh, a charge goes off at the wrong time or an asset has has an issue. Any number of things can go wrong. And if you let yourself get pulled away by any of those things, that can induce fear and anxiety, right? And fear and anxiety are not negative in themselves. They signal to you that, hey, something matters and something's important. What you do with that uh, determines whether or not you're ultimately successful or whether or not that fear overtakes you. And so I think what people in the, in the teams do a really good job of is letting that go, recognizing, hey, something's important, letting it go and trying to figure out what can I control? What can I affect? How can I be in pursuit and be in action and be off my heels to ultimately tie back to being effective on target and achieving the mission? And I think that's something that you just have to get reps in and practice and recognize that you have that capacity and that ability to do that. And it's a, it's a powerful tool. So I don't know if I, if I answered your question there, but that's how I think yeah, about, definitely answered it. Yeah. that's how I think about fear. And it, it's funny. So Andrew, Andrew and I, um, the, one of the first times that we spent together was on this research trip that, that Andrew put together studying fear and how, how you can mitigate fear and bounce back from heightened arousal states using breath and vision protocols. And at the time he said, Hey, we're going on this dive trip. We're going to do these things where we're eliciting fear. And would you be willing to go? I think think you'd really into it. And I said, yeah, I love diving. Like this sounds great. And as we got closer and closer to this trip, he started talking about, well, you know, we're going to, we're diving off Mexico and there's going to be, uh, we're going to, dive with uh, sharks. And I was like, all right, that's kind of cool. And then he's like, yeah, they're gonna be great white sharks and something great, like they have cages and awesome. And we, we kind of show up there and, and then it becomes clear that the part of the way that they're listening fear is to actually leave the cage and dive with great whites outside of the cage. And so I, at that point I had to ask my wife, I said, Hey, honey, I need a, I need a hall pass to go do this. And she said, as long as you come back with all your fingers and toes, you can do it. I said, all right, I'll, I'll assess <laughs> the risk and, and make the right decision when we're there. This is not something that I, I, I think I'll do in the future, but it was a, it was an opportunity for a peak experience and a, an opportunity for growth, and I felt felt reasonably safe doing it. But we'd leave the cage, and as you when you come out of the first time you come out of the cage, there's like seven great whites, right? There's some swimming deep, big ones swimming deep, some on the surface, a few kind of at different levels of the water column all 360. And so you exit the cage with with three or four divers and everyone kind of takes a quadrant and your eyes are scanning. And the advice that the South African shark divers give you before leaving the cage is that if a great white swims by you or turns and starts to come at you, what you have to do 
is resist any and all urge to turn away and swim back to the cage or avoid it. What you have to do is you have to turn and face it and swim directly at it. And they said, because the, the great white is, uh, is an apex predator at the top of the food chain, if you turn and face it and come at it, that's going to signal to the great white that you're not a prey. It's not something that you should that the great white should pursue, and then it'll just veer off and, and leave. And so cognitively, I'm, I'm processing this information. I'm saying, okay, that, I, I get it. I think that makes sense. These guys have been doing this for a while. Surely this works. But it's another thing to think something and connect to it. And then it's entirely different to actually leave the cage and we were in probably three or 400 feet of water. So you can't see the, the bottom of the water. You just see these sharks everywhere to leave the cage and come out and be 15, 20 feet away from the cage and know that that's no longer a place of, of safety and refuge. And, and so it's another thing to, to leave the cage and then to say, okay, I'm going to probably be put in this position where I have to play chicken with a great white. And it's, it's a test I probably only get to take once. And so I need to be present and be in control. And when this happens, I need to do the right thing. And sure enough, you know, a couple minutes later, the great whites swing by and one swims, then comes at you and you're like, holy shit, great white is looking at me and it's coming at me and fear is up. No question about it, but come back to this. What can I control? And what I can control is my protocol is I face this shark and I swim towards it. And so that's what I did. And then the shark wow. swam away. And then it was like, all right, reset, come back. All right. What is the, the mission here of this operation is to get out of this water alive and with all my fingers and toes and let me focus on what I can control. And so that's maybe a small little example of brought to life of kind of what we're talking about, that fear is a, is a positive thing, just as failure is a positive thing, right? Fear and, and anxiety signal to us that something matters. We need to pay attention and we need to understand before we put ourselves in that environment, what's within our control and have engaged in those practices so we have confidence to lean back on them and exert them when the, when the time comes and when our maybe our arousal states are really, really high and it becomes our thinking become muddled. At the same time, failure is a really important and valuable experience, right? Failure, if you view it as such, is an opportunity for learning, for growth, and for ultimately setting you on the path to be successful the next time around, right? And so, so I, to take it kind of back to your question around losing a game and then being caught up in that and your performance, you know, not performing the way you want to perform and then getting in this vicious loop of like, I didn't perform, I failed, I let my team down, I'm not good. But the trick is, is how do you reset and to learn from that, grow from that and have that be something that sets you up for success next time, not something that hinders you or holds you back the next time you perform, right? And if you fail twice in a row, if you're approaching it with the right mindset and say, what can I learn? What can I take away? How can I grow? It's only setting you up for bigger and bigger successes down the road. And so sometimes you have to be able to focus on the game, the operation, the moment, the shot, whatever that one thing is. And it's really important that you do that. But other times you have to be able to zoom out and say, okay, in the context of things, this game was one game of a long season. This season was one season in a long career. This career was one part of my life in a life that spans multiple things, family, friends. So keep zooming in and or zooming out and zooming in as it serves you and as you can kind of uncover what are these opportunities to learn and grow and be better and perform and, uh, and come back bigger and stronger than the next time that, that you have to do that? So that, that's how I would think about that. Can you take us inside your body? You took us inside the mind with a shark coming at you when you're like, okay, I have to come. I have to play chicken. I have to come at it. 
What were you feeling in your body? Did things slow down? And what were you feeling? Time is interesting because a minute can feel like an eternity and a minute can feel like a second. And I think that time definitely slows down. At least my perception of time was that it slowed down during those moments. I also felt in some ways that probably because I wanted to be a small target, like, all right, I'm, I'm bringing everything in. And, and some of this is probably a physiological standpoint, like, all right, I want to protect my vital organs and I, I want to be small and be compact. And I want to be able to react as, as, a, as, I, as, as the situation dictates. From a physical standpoint, I was, I was like, all right, I want to feel small. Time is slowing down. But I'm also very mindful, and this goes back to something we do in the SEAL teams, was to control my pace of breath, right? To recognize if my breathing was starting to get shallow, get rapid, recognize that, hey, if I can control my breath, continue slow inhales and slow exhales, that that's going to affect my physiology and allow me to be present and being present and affecting my physiology in a way that allows me to promote action and to make informed decisions and lean on the right protocols at the right time. And so it's this cycle of the mind, the body, the action, how these are kind of interplaying in an environment of high consequence. They all feed on one another. So it's so fun to hear you speak about this because this is in real time, you explaining all these different aspects and all these micro adjustments of to have your body in a state to survive, to respond. There's so much that goes into it, but it's also like it happened so fast, right? And it was also years and years of training and that got you to this moment, but you were ready to show up in that moment. And that excites me. Final question. When you're in the water, you're used to being with a team in big, intense situations that you know that you can trust. When you're diving with the sharks and you go out with guys that you don't necessarily know how they move, was that in your mind or your body at all? Yeah. When this person moves on my, in that, now the shark's coming at me. 100%. If I was doing that with other team guys, I would have known what they were going to do. I would have known that they were going to take ownership of their quadrant. And I would not have thought a second about checking to making sure that they were doing what they were going to do. Um, in this situation, because I, my team for that dive was, was relatively unknown. They were experienced, but they were unknown. They were an unknown entity to me. My head was constantly on a swivel. Who's that guy doing what he's going to do? And, and also, you know, the part of that is, I don't want to say it's a lack of trust for those people, but I just, lack of familiarity with their SOPs and how they do things and, and wanting to make sure that, Hey, I was not going to be the weak link in this team because those gentlemen had been diving together for a while. So, but yeah, without a question, my head was always on a swivel. I think it speaks a little bit to my mindset coming into that exercise was before we, before we got on the water, I said, okay, Hey, let's go over what are our, um, what are our contingency plans? And so in the, in the SEAL teams, you're always planning for, you're always coming up with, uh, rehearsals of contingencies and figuring out what what are all the possible things that can go wrong and what are our default plans and let's walk through them so everyone's on the same page so that we can be nimble and agile and fast when things go wrong because they will. And so before we went on that dive, I said, all right, what are our contingency plans? Like if uh, a diver gets hit by a shark, what are we doing? Are we grabbing the injured diver, going to the cage and then taking the cage up? Are we grabbing the injured diver and just taking him up to the surface? Are we, what's the, what's the plan? Are we pairing off in buddies and then buddy pairs are, are navigating the situation? And, and their response was, oh, there, there's, there's no plan, mate. Like if someone gets hit by a shark, like it's over. All the sharks, are gonna, it's every man for himself. The sharks are going to descend on that person. And to me, that was not a sufficient answer. Right. That's, and so that, that was another thing that signaled to me like, okay, I need to be extra 
on my game and on guard and and just aware of my environment and what everyone is doing because that is a different dynamic than what I'm used to operating in. My friend Kevin Kevin uh, Jorgensen is a is a professional rock climber, and he loves to talk about the difference between risk and consequence. Right? He's someone that has a a high tolerance for engaging in high consequence endeavors. Right? He does these crazy climbs, and for for a long period of time, he was doing these really free climbing, like high bouldering endeavors. And he said, you know, in my mind, the consequence was high if I fell. But the risk was very low because I did all of this groundwork and preparation and I knew exactly where my body was, how I was performing, what all the conditions were, if something went wrong, what I was going to do. And so he was like, I was able to mitigate most of that risk out of those situations. And he said, I'm comfortable in that space. He said, where I'm not comfortable is if it's high risk and high consequence, because to me, that is just an irresponsible place to exist. And I think I fall in that same ilk that I don't mind doing things that are high consequence, but I want to be very mindful and thoughtful around what are the risks and how can we mitigate them and mitigate the risk to a degree to a point where, all right, I feel comfortable engaging in this activity, even more so now, obviously with with family and children and, and whatnot. But I love that mm-hmm. distinction and separation that that Kevin does with separating risk and consequence, because I do think we get ourselves in trouble when we when we commingle those things and we mix them unwittingly, I think that's where problems can arise. Pat, beyond grateful. <laughs> oh, man, it's amazing, brother. I had, I had so much fun. Uh, I hope, Thank you uh, so much. I hope we covered some, some good ground. I, I enjoyed the I conversation. Mean, amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. Every listener matters to us, so please leave your comments along the way to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, wishing you all the wealth, health, and happiness in the world.